We're going to continue our, in a moment in our uh, journey through the book of Ephesians, but before we actually turn to the text, I'd like you to take your hand and your left hand and stick it out like this. All right, now, there's mumbling and grumbling among the congregation. Some of you know what we're going to do. Some of you don't know what we're going to do. I will teach you what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to clap and we're going to sing at the same time. I'm going to teach you how we're going to clap first before we sing. All right, what you're going to do, it's a rhythm of six. You're going to hit the person's hand next to you, their left hand. Then you're going to hit your right leg, your left leg, the bottom of your hand, and you're going to come down twice on this hand. Now, some of you know what you're doing. Let's see here. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Oh, good. Here we go. That's good. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Now, we're going a little faster here. Slow down a little bit. Here we go. We're going to sing. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. There is only one God. There is only one King. There is only one body. That is why we sing. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. Very good. Now, I confess to you that nobody has a better vantage point for singing that song than I do. Uh, it's fun uh, to watch you sing it, especially uh, people for whom this song is new. I recognize that some of you are visiting or you've never sung that before. Uh, and there, there's a learning curve to singing that song. It's a learning curve that is much less dignified than most of you are. But uh, I like that song not just because it's, it's uh, enjoyable to sing, but I wonder if you noticed it's also a, a prayer song. The reason we clap is because the, the emotions match the, the message of the song. It's, it's a prayer song asking God, God, would you please bind us together in love? And, and the reason that we, we pray that prayer is because there's one God, one King, and one body. And we're going to spend the next two weeks together in a passage that is the basis for that prayer. So I would like you, if you have your Bibles with you, please, this morning, to take and turn with me to the Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. And we're going to, I'm going to read the first six verses of this chapter of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4. Hear then what Scripture says. The Apostle Paul writes this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, We come this morning to a major turning point in the book of Ephesians. Uh, uh, So far, uh, we have been talking about Paul's theology in the first three chapters. And then in verse 4, verse 1 of chapter 4, this transition begins. It's a transition that's noted with, in the NIV, the word then. Maybe in your translation, it's noted with the word therefore. Paul here is beginning, uh, he has begun in the first three chapters with doctrine, and now he's moving to the practice, how that doctrine applies in the church. Paul first explains in, in Ephesians 1 to 3 what God has done for us, and now he's going to talk about how we respond to what God has done for us. This is a common move that Paul makes. It's very clear in the book of Romans. Julia this morning read the first uh, 16 verses or so of that transition in Romans. Uh, it's in First Thessalonians. It's here in Ephesians. In almost every one of his books, Paul starts this way. He starts with the doctrine, the things that we should believe about what God has done, and then he moves to how we respond to that. God's work comes first. Our response follows. This is how Christianity works, and it's crucial that you get this. This distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Our obedience, our our listening and response to God is always a response to what God has done. We do not obey so that God will accept us. We are accepted already by God through Jesus Christ, so we obey. C.S. Lewis was once asked what made biblical Christianity unique. And he answered a very simple, well-known answer. One word, he said, Grace, grace, grace comes and we respond. Uh, This response on our part to the work of God is central to Christianity and it's something that many people struggle with. You who are here struggle with understanding this. We struggle to understand how the things that we do for Christ's sake do not in some way earn us merit or credit or heaven points before God. It's a good thing he's here today. Now, one of the reasons that we struggle with this, one of the reasons that we struggle with this concept of, yeah, if I, if I do right, God will be happier with me, God will love me more. One of the reasons that we struggle with that is because the rest of our lives work that way. I think about your grades in school. You don't, you don't walk into class on the first day and your professor says, here's your report card. Here's your final grade, and every single one of you have already marked it in ink on the report card. You all got A's. Now go and live and learn like A students. It's not the way class works. Some of you, I could see your brains were working, and you're already thinking to yourself, I can sleep in the rest of the semester. I don't have to do anything. Well, class doesn't work that way, does it? You've you got to earn the grade that you get. You, you, I don't expect that you're going to walk into work this week and your boss is going to sit you down and say, hey, I'm giving you a raise and a promotion. Now I want you to go demonstrate to everybody here that you're worthy of that raise and that uh, promotion. It's not how work works. It's not how grades work. But it is how the gospel works. In Christ, God has made us perfect 
we have a right standing, everything that we need for full and free acceptance before God through Jesus Christ. And in Christ, God has cut the ties that bound you, that bind you to your old way of life, and He has set you free to live life under Him. In Christ, everybody here is an A student. Now we're living and learning, demonstrating that in the way that we live. It's crucial that you get this. And we're transitioning that way today in the book of Ephesians. All of the Christian life properly understood is a response to what Jesus Christ has already achieved for us. It doesn't take you long to pursue this life of following Him, under Him, to figure out that this life is not a solitary life. God has called us to Himself, but He has called us not just to Himself, but to a community of His followers. You don't have to read the New Testament very long to discover that a central part of following Jesus Christ means allying yourself to a local congregation of believers. This, this allegiance is one of the central concerns of the New Testament, and one of the reasons it's a central concern of the New Testament is because it's one of the chief ways that you demonstrate that God has changed your life. How do you know your relationship with God is real? You know your relationship with God is real by the relationships that you have with His fellow followers. He changes you to interact with other people, specifically those who are followers of Christ. Uh, One of the images that the New Testament uses to describe this communion that we have as followers of Jesus Christ is in verse 3 of chapter 4, where it says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's an interesting word, bond. It's a prison word. Paul's in prison. Uh, He was familiar with what it means to be bound. Prisoners are bound with chains. We have been bound by the Spirit with peace, together with one another. Uh, This is an image that you should be able to identify with or easily grasp. This is a plot line in dozens and dozens of television shows and movies. The main characters in some way get tied together. They lose the key or handcuffed together. And they've got to somehow get out. They've got to figure it out. In romantic comedies, somehow, you know it's, it, 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 it happens in 20% of them, the, the male and female leads who don't like each other get handcuffed together. How does that happen to normal people? But they get handcuffed together and uh, they hate each other, but they have to make it somewhere. And by the time they get there, they can't imagine being apart. They're bound together. We are bound together by the Holy Spirit, not with chains, but with peace. Peace is the binding material. The Spirit does the work of binding us together, and He ties us together with peace. Ephesians chapter 4 does not tell us to create unity in the church. The Spirit has already created the unity. He has already brought us together. We are too, and the command is, make every effort. Strive to maintain it. Verse 3, make every effort to keep, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I'm charged this morning with telling you this, uh, with the responsibility of telling you that keeping the unity of the Spirit is hard work. It's difficult work. It's going to take effort and care and thought and discipline. Because it's hard work, some commentators imagine that the unity of the Spirit is a fragile thing, like a crystal vase. 
you know the difference between a vase and a vase? About 300 bucks. Um, uh, when my grandmother was a nurse. She retired from her job twice, uh, once when she was 65, once when she was 70. Um, and at one of her retirement parties, uh, somebody gave her as a gift a, a vase, a very fancy little, it was a, it was a bud vase, very, very delicate and small, and uh, uh, had a very, uh, the, where you put the flower in was tall and narrow and very thin, and then at the bottom there was a little glass piece leading to a small glass swan, beautiful little vase. I, I don't remember how old I was, but I remember every single woman in my family, my grandmother, my mother, my aunts, saying to me, look with your eyes. I was probably 17. Look with your eyes, not your hands. Don't touch that. It's fragile. Is the unity of the Spirit fragile? Something we have to be really careful with? If the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, does this work, why is His unifying work so fragile? He does delicate work. The Spirit does delicate work. Does He do fragile work? I think that the maintaining work is difficult, not because the Spirit's work is fragile, but because it's so uh, massive, so hearty and strong that it bangs around in your heart, and that's what's hard and difficult. Have you ever put uh, sneakers in a dryer? You've done that, right? Put sneakers, you're on a dry, your sneakers, you put them in a dry and you turn on, and you feel, you hear the sound. If you stand next to it, you can feel it. The sneakers are not going to tear apart the dryer. Dryer's not probably going to tear apart the sneakers. The, The sneakers are hardy and hale. And the unity of the Spirit that the Spirit has created is thumping around in your soul like sneakers in a dryer. And that's why this is hard and difficult, why this presses. Maybe as we look at these uh, uh, words in this passage, you'll feel that thump a little bit as we live out the Spirit's work. Uh, the word bind here in verse 3 uh, makes me think of a three-legged race. Ever been involved in a three-legged race? We used to do three-legged races in Awana all the time when I was in high school. Awana makes uh, uh, wide, long Velcro bands, and you get two kids and you strap them together uh, in the middle around their their legs in the middle. They have a three-legged race. The best three-legged race team I ever saw consisted of a kid who was big. He was in sixth grade, and he was tall, and he was uh, substantial. I mean, he was a big kid. Not not. Um, obese, but he was just a solid kid. And they paired him up for this three-legged race with a kid who, he was in third grade, but he must have weighed 42 pounds. I don't know, just, just. So they strap these two kids together and they walk up to the finish line and the big kid grabs the little kid around his arms and when the whistle blows, he lifts and runs. <laughs> that little kid, his, his left leg was moving with the big kid. His right leg, I don't think it ever hit the ground. They zoomed around the circle. That is not how most three-legged race teams work. Most three-legged race teams, you pair two kids who are about the same size together, and, 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 and they get together, their legs are bound together, and you see them, it, the good teams, that are, the teams that are good at this, they practice and they think about this. So when the whistle blows and the goal signal, are we going to lead with our inside foot or are we going to lead with our outside foot? 
When we put our arms around each other, are you going to go higher or lower? Who's going to do that? Who's going to count? Who's going to have chief responsibility for counting? One, two, one, two, as we move around the circle. They're, they're bound together, and, and they have to strategize, how are we going to make progress together? Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, is about the virtues that followers of Christ in any congregation have to cultivate so that they can move together as a body. If we're going to make progress, it's not about inside leg, outside leg. It's not about counting. It's not about where our arms go. It's about cultivating these virtues in our lives. We're bound together by the Spirit. What do we have to work on in order to move forward? Uh, for the balance of our time, I want you to see this morning four virtues in this passage that are listed here. And, and uh, then I want to talk, after we talk about those virtues themselves, we're going to talk about what makes those virtues hard. Why is this hard to do this, if not impossible? And then I want to talk about where the strength comes for us to live out these virtues. Uh, let's, let's look at the four virtues first themselves. Uh, the first one is humility. Humility. Verse 2, be completely humble. Uh, the Greek word translated humble here is a word that does not occur before the New Testament. It's a virtue that Christianity brought to the fore. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, in Philippians 2, humility is the opposite of self-seeking. It's the opposite of boasting. It's the opposite of pride. It's compared with being lowly in mind. Uh, C.J. Mahaney wrote a great book on humility called Humility. Uh, and, and this is what he says humility is. He defines it this way. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. I'll say that again. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. John Calvin said, you will never really know yourself well unless you know God first. Let me read what he said. It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look at himself. Humility is not a virtue that the Greeks Valued. In fact, there was a philosopher who lived about the same time that the Apostle Paul did who listed humility as a vice to be avoided. It's, it's apparently not the way to get ahead. <laughs> Why does Paul start with humility? Why is this the first thing that he wants to be cultivated in the church? This is the first point of application for the church in Ephesus. Be humble. Why is that first? I, I think Paul is aware... And I think you're aware too, you should be, of how toxic pride is to a relationship. Pride is always toxic. Pride is closely rooted to all sin. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 14, when Isaiah the prophet is writing about the first sin ever committed when Lucifer, the angel that God created, rebelled against him, this is how uh, the prophet writes about uh, Lucifer. This is the words that he attributes to that angel. He, the angel looked at God. Uh, well, Isaiah quotes him as saying this, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will. 
Pride in itself is a challenge to God's authority. It's a demand for personal autonomy, personal authority. It's, it's saying to God the Creator, I will decide for myself what is best. I will serve my own interests. <laughs> Jesus said in another context, no man can serve two masters. And the default position of the human heart is, I want to serve myself, not God. Uh, in opposition to God, the Bible tells us God opposes the proud. Someday, God opposes the proud and someday God will come and depose the proud. When, when Jesus Christ comes in His glory to enact His Father's wrath against all those who stand against Him. Pr- pride is, is a toxic sin. It's toxic personally before God and it's toxic in a congregation too. Think with me for a minute about how pride impacts a relationship. Proud people never ask for forgiveness. Uh, And if they do, it is certainly not because they went first. Uh, Thursday morning, I was invited to a very special conference. I was asked to mediate a conflict on Thursday morning. Uh, One of my children was crying because he got hit. Um, he got hit because he hit first. Uh, so uh, I entered into uh, some conflict resolution training with my children. And, uh, and I suggested to my son that do, when you do not get your way with your sisters, hitting them is not a good strategy, especially when they're bigger and they can hit back. So I said to Luke, I said, you must go and apologize to your sister. And he didn't want to. Why? I got hit too. I I know that you got hit too and it was not a good choice and I'm going to speak to your sister about what she did, but you must apologize. Why do I have to apologize first? I'm trying to cultivate in my son uh, skills necessary to lead a family someday and I think that if you're the husband, it's your responsibility to take the lead in reconciliation. So I said to him, because you're the boy, you need to go and apologize first. He didn't want to do that either. So I employed uh, Pastor Scott's strategy. And I said to him, I said, now Pastor Scott always says that if you're ever in an argument, the first one to apologize wins. <laughs> I was desperate at that moment in time. If I, if, if, not sure... I'm trying to find a verse for that. See, he's been looking for a verse for a long time for that. People, proud people never apologize and they never apologize first. And you cannot have a real relationship with somebody without forgiveness and without apologies. Pride is toxic to a relationship. Proud people have a sense of entitlement in a relationship. A sense that they deserve something from you from in a relationship. Uh, you can't sustain a friendship if someone feels entitled to you, to your time, to your attention. Proud people are concerned about you only as your welfare affects them. They want to help you only because they don't want to have grumpy people around them because it makes them feel bad. Uh, uh, they may ask you how you're doing. They tr- may try to help you, but only because uh, once your problems are solved, you can focus where uh, it, it should be on them, on their problems. 
Pride is so toxic. Paul says uh, that the rhythm of the alliances in the congregation have to be marked by humility. The second virtue here is gentleness. Gentleness. This is a word that's translated sometimes meekness. Maybe it's in your Bible. But meekness is often confused with weakness and the two are not the same thing. To be gentle is to be self-controlled and temperate and uh, not rough. You can be very strong and be gentle. Gentle people do not use the strength that they have to uh, hurt other people or to retaliate against them, to dominate them. Gentle people are not weak people. Gentle people are the people who use the strength they have, the influence, the power they have to help other people, to serve other people. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, Paul wrote to Timothy about spiritual leadership. Next week we're going to vote to affirm three elders. Listen to what Paul says about spiritual leadership. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That is, pastors and and, and elders in a congregation are to use the authority that they have been given not to crush people, not to destroy people, but to serve them. Um, You don't know, Paul says, your gentle influence on someone might lead them to repentance. Are, Are you watching the coverage of the GOP presidential primary? I'm praying for it daily that it will end what I'm praying. But here's a perfect example of men who are using their rhetorical skills, all their money, and all their influence to crush somebody else. That's not at all gentle, as Paul is admonishing us here. I want you to think for a minute. Do you know somebody uh, who needs gentleness from you? Is there somebody in your sphere of influence who needs you to use your power and your authority and the strength that you have to, to, to uh, help them, to serve them? Maybe it's someone in church who's caught in a particular sin. Galatians 6.1 says, If any of you are overcome in a sin, you who are mature must help them, uh, but do it gently. Maybe you know somebody uh, who is just overwhelmed with, with difficulty because their marriage is falling apart. Or just that they're so discouraged because of persistent illness in their life. How can you use the gifts and strengths and skills that God has given you to uh, uh, restore them, to, to gently help them? Resist the temptation to make yourself look better by tearing down someone else who's hurting, by crushing someone else who has already crushed. Gentleness is, is crucial for preserving the unity that the Spirit has created. Here's virtue number three, patience. Patience. Again, this is a rare word. It's it's used in the Bible in, in two primary contexts. It refers to those, the attitude of those who are waiting, and it refers to how you respond when someone hurts you or someone offends you. In the Old Testament, the concept of patience meant someone who was slow to anger, someone who had a long fuse. March of 2006, the Associated Press did a survey of a thousand adults to to find out about their attitudes for waiting. Here's some of the things that they found. While waiting in line at an office or store, it takes an average of 17 minutes 
for most people to lose their patience. On the phone, it takes about nine minutes for most people to lose their patience. Uh, women lost their patience after waiting in line for about 18 minutes. For men, it was an average of 15 minutes. Uh, people, listen to this, people with lower income and less education are more patient than those with a college education and a high income. People who live in the suburbs are more patient than people who live in the city. Now, I wonder why people with a higher income and more education are less patient. I, I think, actually, maybe we found another way which pride is toxic to relationships. If you have more education and you make more money, why should you wait in line for yahoos who are slow and stupid? If they were smarter and they were quicker, they could make more money and they would go to school like you did. It's a sense of entitlement, isn't it? Hmm. How patient are you with the repeated failures of those in your family? Their, their persistent problems? What do you think about your wife's uh, sinful patterns or your husband's continued stumbling? It is possible to be patient and graciously encourage change. That, that's not what I'm saying. But it's not a sign of maturity to simmer on the inside over the faults of those that you are closest to. The final virtue mentioned in this passage here is forbearance. Forbearance. That, that's, that's the word maybe in older translations. Uh, in, in the NIV it says bearing with one another. It, it's forbearance. Uh, today we use the flat word tolerate. Tolerate is a flat meaningless word. It's, it's a philosophical word that reveals the spirit of our age. We must tolerate everyone. Uh, tolerance is a virtue uh, because uh, everybody is entitled to their own opinion and no one can claim that they're right. No one can claim to believe absolute truth. Everyone is right and the only one who's wrong is, his, is someone who says that he is right and everybody else is wrong. Huh. You have to tolerate everybody and let them speak and listen to them. You should tolerate them. People these days have forgotten that tolerance is a virtue not because everybody is right or might be right, but because everybody has the right to be wrong. <laughs> biblical forbearance, biblical tolerance is, is different. Paul uses the word, notice it says, bearing with one another in love. In the Bible, love covers sins and it covers faults and it, wrong, it covers wrongs. It doesn't pretend that they don't exist. Uh, 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 tolerance in the Bible does not pretend that wrong does not exist and that evil does not exist. It's not what tolerance in the Bible is. The Bible, though, calls us to forbear with one another, that is, cover one another's sins in love. Make every effort, as much as you possibly can, to forgive and forgive, and forgive, and forgive. Forbearance. So here are the virtues. We're bound together by the Spirit with peace, and if we're going to move, if we're going to make, uh, have a plan, uh, like those three-legged racers, uh, we've got to infuse into our relationships these virtues. Humility, patience, forbearance, uh, gentleness. And maybe you can already see here why these virtues are hard. 
think for me with for me with uh, think with me for a minute about the impossibility of living out these virtues, the difficulty of this. Why are these things so hard to live? Why does it feel like there's sneakers going on in your, the dryer of your soul when, when you're, you think about these relationships? I, I want you to think for a minute, why did Paul write the church about exhibiting these attributes? Or, or maybe, maybe there's a better question to ask. Why do people in a church need gentleness and patience and humility? People in the church need patience and gentleness and humility because there are other people in the church that are being just the opposite of all those things. Or or to put it another way, someone else is being boorish or failing or being rude or angry or self-centered. How do I know that? I know that because Paul knew that. Paul would not tell a church filled with completely sanctified people that they need to forbear with one another. Paul would not write to a church that was filled with perfect people that they, they, that they need to be gentle or patient or humble. This is reality in the church. The reason that you wrestle with these commands, the reason that the Spirit's unity bounces around in your soul is because at every moment in your participation in this congregation, you will need to be tolerating somebody else. You will need to be humble before somebody else. You'll need to be gentle with somebody else. You'll need to be patient with somebody else, and somebody else will need to be gentle and patient with you. Take some uh, maturity to recognize this. Uh, it's an immature person who flits from church to church to try to find the church that doesn't have interpersonal conflict. Those interpersonal conflicts in a church are not a sign of, of weakness in the church, though they could be. Uh, what's more telling about that church is how they respond to those interpersonal conflicts. If they face one another, if the church faces one another with patience and gentleness and humility and forbearance. Uh, you will never, ever outgrow your need for these virtues. If, if our church ever gets to the point where we don't need Ephesians 4.2, I'm going to have to resign because I need them all the time. This is what makes out, living out these virtues hard because somebody else will always be testing your ability to live them out. And what makes them hard, and not just hard but impossible, is, is how much you need them. Oh. How much you need patience and gentleness and forbearance from others. It's hard to express these virtues. It's hard to take these virtues either. I don't want to give them and I don't want to admit that I need them, which is part of my alienation from God, part of my uh, sinful rebellion against God. Paul's expectation is that uh, we're going to be living with one another in a relationship in such a way that the, the gears of our relationship are going to need to be lubricated with the oil of these virtues. And that's a costly thing. It's a costly thing to think about what it's going to take to display these things. There, there's only a couple ways you can avoid it. You can avoid these virtues either by choosing to dominate everybody around you so that they're too afraid to express any gentleness or patience or humility or forbearance with you, or you can draw back so you never get close enough to need them with anybody else. There's lots of people in the room with their strategies. They're going to dominate or they're going to pull back so they never get close enough to need or to give or receive 
patience or gentleness. I I want to finish here this morning by talking about where the strength to live these virtues comes from. How do we develop these things? If If they're so necessary and they're such a challenge, where does the strength come to do these? I think the answer to that question is in in verse 1. Paul says, I encourage you, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. That is, live a life that flows naturally or that matches your calling. What calling is he talking about? He's talking about the calling of the gospel. If you were... Uh, If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you were like every other Christian in the world, living a life alienated from God, turned away from Him, but He has called us. Paul's talking about this effective power of His calling. God has come into the life of every follower of Christ who's turned away from Him, and He's invited that person to turn to Him through Jesus Christ. Through His Son, Jesus, who has paid the penalty for our sin on the cross and set us free from sin's dominating power, we turn to God by faith and we begin to walk with Him. And these virtues match that calling. These are gospel virtues. What Paul is saying is that unless the gospel uh, really, unless you really get the gospel, unless it really uh, penetrates deeply into your heart, you will never be able to show Genuine humility, real patience. But when the gospel sinks deep down, really deep down, these virtues make all the sense in the world. It is inconceivable for someone called by God out of darkness into life to be filled with pride. It's inconceivable. Paul asked the Corinthians, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And do you really, Paul says, deserve all the things that, that, that you have that you think make you better than someone else? Every benefit that you have is a gift or a result of the mercy of God. So to turn to Christ is to answer the call of the gospel, to, to answer the call of the gospel is to recognize your desperate situation before God and the absolute necessity of turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Desperate people, dependent people cannot be proud people. This is a worthy life, a life worthy of that calling. We can be gentle with other people because we realize that God did not use His immense strength, His immense power as the creator of the universe. God has not used that power to crush us, but He has used it to crush His Son on our behalf on the cross. And we can be gentle with the authority and the power that we have. We can forbear because God bears with us in the sins that we continue to fight. Those patterns and habits that are so destructive and over and over and over again in love, God forbears. Heather King is a writer. She's a commentator on National Public Radio. Uh, She's a former alcoholic who came to Jesus Christ. And here's part of her testimony. Listen to it. She said uh, she was thinking about becoming part of a church. My first impulse was to think... God, I don't want to get sober, or in the case of church membership, uh, I don't want to get sober with these nutcases, or boring people, or people with different politics, tastes in music, food, books, or whatever. Nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people. People who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves. People who are us. 
But we don't come to church with, to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And the church is the best place, the only place to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we're hard-pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God, that He loves us or that He loves everyone else. You can be a humble, patient, gentle, forbearing person because God has already done all of those things for you in your life. This is why you can live a life that's worthy of the calling and it's one of the ways that in Christ we're filled to overflowing. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we recognize this is a high calling that you have given us. Uh, These are high commands. It is not natural for us to be gentle or patient or humble or forbear. It's much more natural for us, Father, to be uh, angry and spiteful and proud and uh, aggressive and domineering. But we come before you on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of what you have already done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would cultivate these virtues in us. We have heard of them now, we have seen them in your word, and we come before you Uh, We come before you because your word tells us that your word is powerful. Psalm 29, the word of the Lord shakes the mountains and it rips bark off trees and it it parts waters. Your word is, is powerful. And God, I pray that you would take what your word says and that you would stamp it on our souls, in our minds, in our hearts, that we would walk before one another in a way that is worthy of the calling that we have received. You have been patient with us and gentle to us. Uh, you forbear with us. Uh, overflow that, those virtues. Fill us to overflowing toward one another, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.